Okay. <clears throat> like I said earlier, in case you didn't know about it, Thursday's Thanksgiving. Of course, really, the only ones that really gets panicking about that is us women, generally speaking. Because, you know, the men, the men get the remote, we get the turkey to cook. Isn't that the way it works? Some days I wonder, God, why didn't I be a man? I just sit in the living room and go like this. That'd be so much more fun, wouldn't it? Actually, we're going to a friend's house so I can sit there <laughs> if they'll let me have it. <laughs> so there's something about Thursdays and turkey and football. I don't know what the pilgrims did without football, you know. They might have had the turkeys, but I don't know how they survived the day without football. So if that's a surprise to you, then, like I said, you can panic after the service is over. Now, in the, the history of Thanksgiving, there was a custom that was uh, kind of set up by the early settlers. And this custom was that uh, at Thanksgiving once a year, that the early settlers would take five kernels of corn, and I don't know whether you've seen them or not. They kind of look, you know, they're pretty good size. I wish I could have got a hold of some, but I didn't. So you just have to imagine a kernel of corn. Have you ever seen corn nuts? You know what they look like? Well, this kind of looks almost like that, only it's yellow. So, okay. So you got the, they, they would get these five kernels of corn, and every, on every plate they would put these five kernels of corn. It would empty plate. And then when everybody sat down at the Thanksgiving dinner, then they would go around the table and every person would pick up those five kernels of corn. And every person would start counting off and, and uh, sharing what they were thankful for with every kernel that they laid down. And they went around the table until everyone had done that. And after everyone had gotten into the, the attitude of Thanksgiving, then they would have the meal. And I think that's, that's something that maybe we should do at Thanksgiving. We're so such a hurry, Lord. We smell, we smell the turkey cooking. We do all these other kind of things. And we sit down and we just start shoveling in the food. Maybe this year, maybe we ought to just stop a moment and go around the table and say, what are you thankful for? Start naming things that we're thankful for. And then we can start appreciating Thanksgiving a little more because that's what it's for. We think Thanksgiving, to us, it means turkey and football. But it's supposed to mean being thankful for what God has done for us. We live in a world that's been so blessed that we can't understand how the early settlers were because it's just kind of blown out of our mind. And if we go to history class, maybe they teach it a little bit in school. I don't know. Maybe they don't. But we have it so much better than they did when those original pilgrims left and landed at Plymouth Rock. They came here for a new life and a new hope. And they didn't find all those things that they wanted. The first year that they were here, it was not a pleasant time and not a pleasant experience for them. They found that they would dug seven more graves than they built houses. So people died in that first winter like crazy. Seven to one, the people were dying that came over on the Mayflower. That's a lot of people. But it didn't dampen their feeling of gratitude. It didn't dampen their hope. It didn't dampen any, their vision of what they came here for, to come here for freedom and to worship God in the way that they wanted to. They came here not to have a government tell them what they could believe, what they could worship. That's why they came here. And irregardless of whether people died, no matter what happened, they still did not lose that thankfulness and that gratitude that God had provided for them. And so they used the five kernels of corn to remind them. And it was on this gratitude and on this thankfulness 
as a, as a people that this nation was built. They were devout people of faith that was the foundation of this nation. And no matter what they say in the world, this is, was, and is, to most of us, still a Christian nation. Although they try to kick it on the back burner, and they'll probably try to change Thanksgiving, too, if we, if we let them to something other than Thanksgiving. But hopefully, we as Christians will not allow that to happen. Now, this morning, I want you to turn your Bibles to the, the 103rd Psalms. This is going to be our text today, and this scripture is a, is a scripture about thanksgiving. And out of this scripture, I want to look at five things from these verses, or five kernels of things that we as Christians can be thankful for. Because we as Christians have so many things to be thankful. Now I'm going to read this out of the God's Word translation, so it might be a little bit of difference. And uh, when I go through a little bit other... Again, I will kind of use a different version so we can kind of grasp it because sometimes the these and the thous kind of get to us and confuse us. I like the these and the thous because I've grown up on them. I've cut my teeth on them, so that's okay. But one, Psalm 103, starting the first verse. Praise the Lord, my soul. Praise his holy name, all that isn't within me. Praise the Lord, my soul, and never forget all the good he has done. He is the one who forgives all your sins, the one who heals all your diseases, the one who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with mercy and compassion, the one who fills your life with blessing so that you can become young again like an eagle. Now, when David wrote this, this psalm, it was a psalm of thanksgiving, something he wanted to cry out. He had just been delivered from a battle or something that he was going through, and he was so happy and so excited. He was speaking his whole body to, to raise up in praise, his body, his soul, his mind, and his spirit. He wanted the whole thing to just cry out in a symphony to God in thanksgiving. And that's what we should be doing. We have a lot more to be thankful for than, than David did sometimes. Look at the blessings that God has given us. We don't have to run from our enemies yet. <laughs> That may happen in America if, if things continue. But we don't have to run and hide from our enemies. But David, he, with all that was in him, he wanted to pray and to cry out to God and to thank him for everything that he had done. And he started recounting some of those things in, in the scriptures. So out of this thing, the first kernel I want to look at is for, thanks, for forgiveness. Verse 3a says, He is the one who forgives all your sin. God offers forgiveness to every one of us. God died, or Jesus died on the cross for our sin, and he's offering that forgiveness to each one of us. I know there's a lot of people that have a lot of things they'd like to be forgiven for. A drunk driver who's driving drunk and they kill somebody. Man, they want forgiveness. They need forgiveness so they can go on with their life. A while back we had that man that made that homemade fireworks and it went off and hurt that 10-year-old boy. That man wants forgiveness. He desires forgiveness. And he longs for it. Pornography ruins a lot of marriages. And how many times do people that got caught up in that web, they say, oh, I want forgiveness. I want to be forgiven for what I've done. I've sinned. I want to do this. And we individually. I've got a lot of things in my life I'm not proud of. A lot of things in my life that I wouldn't run right up here and put up on this screen to let you know. Because I, I spent a lot more of my life as a sinner than I did as a Christian. And I wouldn't want any of that stuff up there so you could see. 
So I need forgiveness. We all need forgiveness. But God provided for it. God provided for forgiveness for every one of us. And all we have to do is come to him, confess our sins, and he forgives us. Man, what a deal. Man, if, we, if, if, some, if you could just wipe the slate clean, if those people that have killed somebody in a DUI incident, if they could just wipe the slate clean and feel good about themselves again, wow, what a blessing. But that blessing is right here this morning for each one of us. His forgiveness is for all of us. All we have to do is take it. And that's one of the things we can be thankful for this Thanksgiving, that kernel of Thanksgiving. Forgiveness is something that was promised by God, and it was provided by Jesus. And it's practiced in the church. It's something not only practiced, it's something that's required. And throughout this Bible, it proclaims forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. You don't have to live like this. You don't have to worry about what's happened in your past because God wants to forgive you. And it's there. All we have to do is just grab it. So I'm thankful for forgiveness. The second thing to be thankful for is healing. Verse 3b, the one who heals all your diseases, all healing is divine healing. Whether it be through the natural way that God has created our bodies to be able to heal themselves, it's all divine healing. If, someone, if you can get healed through surgery, God is the one that granted the knowledge to those to be able to help you. So everything that happens, it's God's healing that's happening. And it's divine because all, every good and perfect gift from God is, or healing is from God. Everything, every good gift comes from God. But David here, he's not speaking of an external thing that's going on in his life. He's speaking, bless, my, bless the Lord, O my soul. He who heals all your diseases. He's talking to his soul. His soul is crying out. Because did you know that sin causes diseases in the soul? That's the problem. That's the problem that we need to face. Matthew 15, 19 to 20 says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. Just as the disorders and things in our life that we don't take care of our bodies cause problems in our life, so does things within our soul. And a lot of things that people are experiencing is caused because of sin. If you drink all the time and all you do is live your whole life drunk, it's going to ruin your liver. And that is because of sin doesn't matter. I mean, sometimes when you come to God afterwards, if things are destroyed, sometimes God heals that. Sometimes he doesn't. But sometimes we create a lot of things that we have in our life. And our, the devil wants to destroy every one of us. That's his motive. That's his, what he wants to do. But God says, I want to heal your soul. And healing comes from the inside out. It doesn't come externally. It comes out of the heart. And out of the heart, is, is, is what comes out of the mouth is what's in the heart. And that's what God wants to heal. He wants to heal the in, internal parts of us. The external things are great, but unless we have the internal things fixed, we won't appreciate the things externally. So he's thankful, and we need to be thankful for the healing of our souls. The third thing to be thankful for is redemption. The one who redeems your life from destruction. We kind of think that being redeemed and forgiven is the same thing, but it's not. It's completely different. 
when we're forgiven for our sin, the slate's wiped clean, yes. So if I look up a thing and it's gone, it'll be a blank page like we was talking about in Sunday school. God's going to look at your name and all the bad things that we did. It's going to be gone. It's going to be blank pages. God forgives it. But redeeming is something completely different. If we take out a loan like a lot of these people did, or bought, bought things they couldn't afford, a house or whatever it might be, and they can't afford the house, they're going to get kicked out of the house. It's going to be foreclosed on. And now may, if they can take out bankruptcy, take out bankruptcy, the debt is forgiven. It's gone. You don't owe it no more, technically. But you don't get the house back. You still have to move. You're still got to live in the street. doesn't matter. Because if you don't pay the price there, hey, you're out in the cold. But God's word says he's redeemed us. In other words, it went, if, if he redeemed our house, then we, he would wipe out the debt free and clear, and we'd get the house too. That's the difference in forgiveness and redeeming. God wants to redeem us. Not only forgive us, he wants to redeem us. He wants to give us back everything that the devil has stolen. Everything that has destroyed our life, God wants to, to redeem. And the price of redemption wasn't cheap. The London Times publishes every year a magazine that talks about all the art that was sold. And if you want to know what was sold, it addresses every single thing in that, that was sold. These great exhibits, these great art items, these great paintings. And you can find out how much was paid for them. And that's how we determine what something is worth. We determine what something is worth by what it costs to have it. That's the reality of it. If you have a painting that's worth $5 million, somebody wants to pay $5 million for it, hey, that's what it's worth. It's worth whatever it can be paid for. That's what it's worth. But then we look at our redemption. What did it cost? God emptied heaven to redeem us. Sure, it's free to us, but it wasn't free to him. And we need to realize the cost Jesus paid for us to be redeemed so he could give us back what we lost. That's what the price of our salvation was. It wasn't just somebody, it wasn't a, we were talking about sacrifices in the Old Testament versus the New Testament this morning. If you sinned in the Old Testament, the price of your forgiveness was whatever you could afford. If you were very poor, you could offer a dove. If you're wealthy, you were expected to offer a lamb or a ram. So that was the cost of your salvation or your forgiveness at that time. But you still lost the animal. You didn't get the live animal back. You got it. It killed. It died for your sin. But Jesus, when he come and he died, God emptied heaven. Nothing else could happen. Nothing else could save us but Jesus. We were lost. If Jesus hadn't come, we'd still be killing doves. And like I told him this morning, before I was saved, we used to drink up $500 a month. And after I got saved, I probably would have spent $500 a month on all the sins and things I'd committed. <laughs> because I'd be down there all the time, that priest and I'd be on first-name basis. Oh, here's Sandra again. Get out the whatever. So, of course, if you was very poor, you'd have to be real careful about how much you sin, because I can't afford to sin this week because I don't have any money. <laughs> Maybe we ought to institute that. You know, you have to bring an offering every week. You ask for forgiveness, and you have to put something in the offering. Man, would the coffers of this church be full, wouldn't it? Of course, I'd be broke. <laughs> but it didn't cost us anything. It didn't cost us a thing. 
The other things that we've had, it, we had to pay things for it. But we didn't have to pay for this. We couldn't pay anything for it. But Jesus paid it all to redeem us. The governor of Texas, when Governor Neff was there, he went into one of our penitentiaries. And he spoke to the men there. And uh, he said that after he got through speaking, that he would stay behind and he would talk to anyone that wanted to talk to him about something. So he sat there. And the prisoners, they lined up. And every prisoner that lined up was saying, well, I want to be freed because I was innocent. I didn't do the crime I'm in here for. Or because of some judicial error, I'm in here. Somebody made a mistake. Or it's just an injustice that I'm here. Please free me because I'm innocent. And one after one, they came. One after one, they complained. One after one, they talked about how innocent they were. Finally, finally, one guy come up. He said, Governor, he says, I want you to know I did what I came here for. What they sent me here for, I'm guilty of. I did it. But I've served my time. And I th- think that I, I just want the opportunity to be able to go out there and prove to you that I am a changed man. And I will no longer do those kind of things because I know I've learned my lesson. I've paid the price, and I know what it's cost. He says, if you just show mercy upon me, I'll go, and I'll be a good citizen, and I, I will make you sorry for, leave, for, for letting me out of here. Well, when the governor left, there was only one person that ended up getting a pardon when they come up before the parole board. Can you guess which one it was? Pretty easy, isn't it? It's the one that admitted he was guilty. It was the one that said, hey, I did it. I'm a new man now, though. I want the opportunity to show mercy upon it. I paid my fine. I paid my penalty. Well, see, the difference between that kind of situation and our situation is in relationship to God is we couldn't pay that penalty. We can't stand before God and say, I paid my time. Let me out. I paid the price. This is my life. I did these things, but I paid my price. Let me out. Set me free. Let me get into heaven. Uh-uh. That isn't the way it works. We have to come to God the same way. Say, I'm guilty. I did it. I'm, I, I'm in this mess or I'm in these circumstances because I did it. I'm guilty. Please forgive me. Please show mercy on me, oh God. Please. And I promise with all that's in me, with your help and with your strength and your encouragement, I'm going to turn away from my sin. And I'm going to start serving you. And my life will be different if you just give me the opportunity. See, we don't have to beg and we don't have to plead with God. We just have to acknowledge we're sinners. We have to acknowledge that only God could pay the price. He died to pay the price we couldn't pay. And because he did, we have a new life. And because he died, we can live. And we can enter through heaven, not for anything that we've done, but because of his grace and his mercy. God not only redeems us from the penalty for sin, which is hell, but he redeems us from the clutches of the devil. We don't have to live our life under the thumb of the devil or under the foot of the devil. We don't have to. We do sometimes because we, for some reason, we just go, you know, that old commercial is, oh, I could have had a V8. 
Well, we're sitting there and we're suffering through with situations in our life and we're going on and on. Finally, we go, oh man, I could give that to God. I didn't have to stand here and take that. I didn't have to do this, but I did. Why? We don't think about it. But we don't have to fight those battles because God not only forgives us of our sin and gives us a new heart and a new life and redeems us, he gives us back the things the devil taken, but if we don't physically go there and pick it up, it's not ours. We have to take possession of those things. And we have to put the devil in his place. I love putting the devil in his place. I get so tired of him that I, you know, I just punch him in the face, you know. This is for this that happened this week. This is for that person that did this. This is for that person that did that. It's your fault. It's your fault. And that's what we need to realize. We've got to quit, quit se- to separate the things that people do from who they are. Because sometimes the devil even uses me. I hate to admit that, but God, the devil uses me sometimes. And sometimes I say something or I do something that I don't intend to do that may cause somebody some pain or some heartache. I don't intend to do it, but I do sometimes. And sometimes the devil uses me, and sometimes the devil uses you to, to hurt somebody, even though you, don't, you may not even know you've done it. But he does. But we need to get rid of him by the thing and put him under our feet because that's where God put him. And if he's up in a, with his fingers in our life, with his inner fingers in our hand, it's because we've lifted our foot. As long as you've got your foot on their neck, because that's what they used to do when they conquered the enemies, they'd knock them down and they'd put their foot right on the back of their neck. And if you do that, I wouldn't advise it doing it to your kids because the state will be at your door knocking. But if you put your, head, your foot on the neck of Satan, they can't get up. They can't move. They're immobilized. And that's what God did for us. He put him under his feet. And if he's interfering with our life, it's because we've let him get up. And I'm tired of letting him get up. I want to keep him down, and I want to kick him while he's down. So I want to get him out of my life because God has given us victory over Satan. The Satan wants to destroy everyone's life. And he'd love more and more than anything to destroy each one of us. But we have to know that, he, that we have an enemy. And that enemy is here to kill us, and he wants to destroy us. That's the reality of it, and we better face up to it and quit look, look pretending that everything is glorious and everything's flowers and roses because the devil is real, and he wants to destroy us. We just have to look around to see that. Look at all the people that are on drugs. Look at all the people that are alcoholics, and they're in bondage to all kinds of things. Look at our prisons. They're full of people whose lives Satan has destroyed. We don't have to look very far to be able to see that. Sometimes in our own families, we see this destruction. We see these things going on, and we try to help so, so much. And we try to do so much to help them. But the reality is, we can't fight somebody else's battle. We can help them. We can pray for them. But the reality is, they have to quit let, letting their feet up. We have to deal with the situations. But the reality is, we have the victory. We have that power in the name of Jesus. So when we get a thing, I tell Jesus, uh, the Satan, Get out of my life today. I've had enough of you today. You just shut up and get out of here in the name of Jesus. And you know what? He has to go. He has to go. He cannot not obey the name of Jesus. And we as Christians don't use it like we should. We need to use, that, use his name as much as we can to get the devil's fingers off our life. Because if we don't, then he's going to destroy us. Matthew 7.13 says, Wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many are on that road. Being a Christian isn't an easy road to be on. It's narrow. It's not wide. It's easy to go the way of the world. It's easy not to make any waves. It's easy to go to work every day and keep your mouth shut and not ever say anything 
It's easy. That's easy. But being a Christian isn't easy. He never said it would be easy. What part of pick up your cross and follow him does, do we not understand? It's not going to be easy. If it was, everybody would do it. So we need to know that, and we have to face that reality. The next thing, or the fourth kernel to be thankful for, is love and compassion. The one who crowns you with love and compassion. He crowns us with his love and compassion. Now, what does crowns us mean? It means he surrounds us completely with his love and compassion. And we're right in the center of God's love that he has for us and his compassion. And we read over and over and over again in the New Testament how Jesus, when he looked upon something, he said he had compassion for them. And because of that compassion, he healed them. It was because of the compassion of Jesus. So when he surrounds us with his love and he engulfs us with his love and compassion, then how should we respond? We should respond in the same way. Because if we're surrounded and filled with God's love and compassion, you open your mouth, that stuff should come out. But he loves us, and he surrounds us with, our lo- with his love and compassion. And it isn't just because we're Christians that he surrounds us with his love and compassion. I was telling him in Sunday school this morning, God isn't going to love you any more today than he will tomorrow. He loves you the same as much as he did when you was a sinner. We're used to a system that the more, if you do things... And, and you boost up my ego and you do all these kind of things. I'm going to like you more than I like this person over here. But God doesn't like that. God doesn't have those human flaws that we have. And he loved me the same today as he did when I was a heathen, when I was a sinner, when I was, didn't care less about God or, any, or anything in his word. I could care less. But God loved me exactly the same. And God loves all of our unsaved friends and all of our unsaved loved ones. He loves all of them the same as he loves me. You think of the worst sinner that you can possibly think of, or the worst murderer, or the most horrendous thing. God loved Hitler as much as he loves me. Now, that's kind of a, a stretch, irregardless, because it isn't based upon what we do. What we do is what God died, or Jesus came and died for on the cross, to get rid of the things that we do and the things that we are. The things that are in our heart, that's what God wants to change. Because when it's in our heart, then what comes out of our mouth is going to be different. It's going to be things of God. But he doesn't love me anymore because he's a God of love. And it doesn't matter what I do, what I say, where I go, whatever it is, God isn't going to love me anymore. But me as a Christian, when I love God and I allow him to surround me and I allow him to fill my heart with his love and compassion, now all of a sudden the world looks different. All of a sudden the things that used to bother me so much, they're not going to bother me so much. They're going to look in at him differently because when you look at, through the eyes of love, you know, when you fall in love for the first time, isn't it amazing that you never notice all the flaws of, of that person? Have you noticed that? Then you get married and you, and you start living with him, building life to get anything. Man, where was this guy when I was dating? Or where was this woman when I was dating? If she was like this, I never would have married her. Because we look through the eyes of love and we get blinded and all we see is the good things. Well, that's what God's love does for us. That's what his compassion does for us. It helps us to only look at the good things. Because if we look at the good things, then our life becomes better. 
When we start looking at the negative things, then we start getting discouraged and we get depressed. But God doesn't want us to dwell upon those things. He wants us to dwell about the good things. Sure, we have to pray about those things. Sure, we have to do things in that aspect. Sure, we have to do that. But God wants us to look through the eyes of love and see things as he sees them. Where we can see some, maybe a, a little kid that all he is is a little troublemaker getting in trouble all that time and disruptive and all those other kind of things. Well, that's what we see. But God sees a future Paul. He sees a future Peter. He sees a future Billy Graham. Because we're going to need a Billy Graham. And he could, be walk, he could be right out there this morning. Because God sees things that we don't see. And we need to start asking God, help us to see the things that you see. And let your love and compassion fill us. But I'm thankful that God has love and compassion. Because if he didn't, I couldn't be saved without that love. If he didn't love me, he wouldn't have bothered to come and die. It's love that forced him. And it wasn't forcing. It was something that was just, he just couldn't help himself. Just like as a parent, when your kid is suffering, no matter... You would do anything to keep that child from suffering. If they have a fever and you, and you can't get it down, you, it'll force you to put them in the thing of ice water to get that fever, fever down. Listening to them scream and holler and all those things because of your love for them. You want them to get well. And that's what God does. It's because of his love and his compassion. One day there was a, Trump, a, Trump, a tramp that was begging at the Philadelphia Depot. And he'd been on the streets for a long time, left home 18 years before. And like a lot of people, their life didn't turn out very well. And he was living on the streets. And he was just begging for his very existence. And when he was at the, the depot, he was up there and he tapped a man on the shoulder. And the man turned around and he says, could you give me some money for some food? I'm hungry. I need something to eat. And as the man turned around, the young man looked and he noticed it was his father. And he said, Father, don't you recognize me? And with that, the father just reached out and he grabbed him. And he started hugging him and loving on him. And he says, oh, I've been looking for you for 18 years. All I have is yours. Here's this guy living on the streets. And his father finds him. See, we think that we, think that we found God. That's not accurate. God found us. Because it's God's the one that initiated the, re- the relationship. It wasn't us. Oh, they found God. No, God found them. And when God finds us, something's different. And he says, everything I have is yours. Just like this man. And Jesus has spent sometimes 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, or maybe five years, searching for us. Trying to weave our lives into something that he knows is going to cause us to cry out to him. And that's what God does because of his love and compassion. The fifth thing to be thankful for is satisfaction and renewal. Verse 5. The one who satisfies your desires with good things so that your, <clears throat> your youth is renewed like eagles. The Amplified Bible, I liked it a little bit. It said, says, the one who satisfies your necessities with good so that your youth renewed is like the eagle, strong, overcoming, and, so- and soaring. He satisfies us with good things. I don't know any of us are ever satisfied with bad things. Sometimes I'm not even satisfied with, so- with things that some people think are good things. Some people, they like different foods than I like, and I'll taste it, and I thought, ooh, you like that stuff? <laughs> 
because our tastes are different. But God satisfies us with good things. So God isn't going to try to satisfy me with something that isn't going to be good for me or something that I'm not going to like. So every good and perfect gift is from God. And he's going to satisfy me with good things. I like good things. I don't like bad things. And God says, I'm going to satisfy you with good things. We try to satisfy the longing and that emptiness in our heart with so many things. And we look around the, the world that we live in, and we see all these people that have so much. All these movie stars, all these uh, business executives, Bill Gates, and whoever you wanted to put in there. And we look at them, and we think, oh, surely, surely they're satisfied. Surely they have it all. They have money. They have power. They have it all. If I had all that money, oh, I'd be happy too. If I won the lottery, it's all I did. God, let me win the lottery. Let me win the lottery. I'll be fine. So all I need is extra money. And there are times that all you need is a little extra money. And God will give them to you when we need it. Because it's a good thing. But the general, generally speaking, most of the, these movie stars, most of these people that have all these things, where are they? We see them in rehab all the time. We see their lives being destroyed. They're on drugs. They, they're alcoholics. All these other kind of things. Why? Because things do not satisfy that's the reality of it. We can't satisfy our souls with things. And we've got our economy, our personal economy, all mixed up because we think money is what determines our success. Money is what, is what I can use by my benchmark. They have money, so therefore they're successful. But God doesn't look at the external things. God looks at the heart. And in God's way of thinking, we're successful if we're serving him, if we're Christians, if we depend upon him every day, if we're obedient to him and to his word. That's what God, how God looks on success. He looks at the heart. Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, so they shall be satisfied. He says the only kind of hunger that he wants us to have and the thirsting that he wants us to have is for righteousness. And the closer we are to God, the more the external things don't matter. It doesn't matter. No big deal. If I don't have something, it's not a big deal. I'm amazed at the way our attitude changes as we get older. When we were younger and we were looking at some of the things, it was very important to us. Oh, I want a, I want a new car. I've got to have a new car. Oh, man, I want a new car. So you go buy a new car. But when you get older, your attitude about those things changes. Like, yeah, I would really like a new car, but... I really don't want to pay $400 or $500 a month in a car payment. I can't afford that. It's not that big a deal. No, my car's running just fine. So we start looking at things differently when we get older. Unfortunately, we have to get older in order to do that, unless we have God. When we have God in our life, then all of a sudden we start thinking, ah, do I need a new car, God? Do you want me to have a new car? There are some times, and, you know, we need to buy a new car. Sometimes we do. When your present car is nickel and diamond you to death and you're paying more to keep it on the road than you are in the, you know, in the garage or on the whatever, then maybe it's time to look at something else. But generally speaking, those kind of things aren't as important to us when we become Christians. We don't start looking at the, at the, at the temporal things because everything that we see, everything that we can envision, homes, houses, cars, whatever it might be, they're all going to be gone one day. God's going to burn everything all up and he's going to start fresh on this earth and he's going to create a perfect world. So everything we're looking at isn't going to be here 100 years from now, Lord Darius. 
I'm not going to be here 100 years from now. If you hang around for a two-year, 100 of the Lord tarries, I'm not going to be here. I'm, I don't want to live to the age of some of the Old Testament people. Maybe it was good for them back then, but it isn't good for me. I want to go home. But everything we see is temporal, so we need to get our attitudes straight. He says in verse 5 also that, the, that God will renew my youth like the eagles. Now, the eagle is known for three things. Size, it's a big bird, one of the largest birds that there are. Maybe the old dinosaur birds were bigger. I don't know. I haven't seen any of those lately, so I don't know. But they were the largest bird that we have, and it's known for its strength. Eagles are very, very strong. They get a hold of something, goodbye, just wave. <laughs> I was worried about when we lived out in Byers about the birds that come by and take our little puppy away. So I didn't dare leave it outside because I was afraid that you know, a bird would come by and pick it up and take it off. So I was out there and I'm watching. I'm watching for all these you know, birds because I knew if they got a hold of it, it'd be gone. There wouldn't be anything I could do with it because it'd be gone because they're strong. When they get a hold of something, they get a hold of it. And the next thing they're known for is their longevity. They live a long time. They live longer than any bird. That's great. So we live long lives, and God wants us to live long lives. And the next thing that we know about eagles is they molt. Now, what that means is to shed feathers, hair, or skin periodically, especially seasonally, in order to allow replacement of what is lost to new growth. God wants us to molt. He wants us to change. And everything that we have in our lives that's been hurt, injured, or whatever it might be, God wants to replace with something new. And when they, the eagles replaced all its feathers and all the things that it had, it was just like a brand new bird. Wouldn't you like, oh, man, I'd like to have a new arm, new leg, new hips, new feet. You know, wouldn't it be nice to be able to just go down there and lose, oh, no, it's all right, God, I'm going to grow up. Every year I'm going to replace everything that's bad. Wouldn't that be great? Oh, that'd be nice. I'd like that part. Oh, but he says, in the spirit, in our spirit, God is renewing us daily. Every day, if we come to him, we read his word, we study his word, and we pray, he's renewing the inside of who we are. He's renewing us every day so the things of this world don't bother us so much. And we can live through this world and not be a part of it. He says we're supposed to be in the world but not of the world. As Christians especially, the problems we get into are usually caused because we're of the world. I mean, in the world, not of it. We're, we're, in, we're of the world. Anyway, we're part of the world system. We're part of there, and that's where our vision is, and that's where our strength is, and that's what we're pursuing is the things of this world. That's where we get into problems. But when we do something differently and God, we let God to renew our inner hearts and our inner minds and who we are, then we look at situations and they don't bother us so much. Oh, it's not a big deal. Oh, well, so that package I've been waiting for for six weeks is supposed to be here today, isn't here. It doesn't matter. No big deal. God teaches you patience when you're a Christian and we're committed to him because God has patience. I don't want the patience of Job, however. The, the only one that's supposed to pray for patience is doctors. They're the only ones. And I'm not a doctor, so I don't ever pray for patience. That's the thing. I don't care. As a Christian, I don't ever want to pray for it. I got, I, don't, I got enough situations in my life because the only way we learn patience is through the things that we suffer. And I've done enough suffering. I, didn't want, I don't want any patience, Lord. I'm fine. I'm fine. So God wants to renew our hearts to where we are more like him because that's God's will for our lives, to be like Jesus. That's, that's his will. 
That's, what he, that's his vision for us. And the closer we get to him, the more we're changed. And all of a sudden, he can turn somebody that's not loving into a very loving person. I told my husband, when my, when my mom got saved and filled with the Holy Spirit, I tell people, she turned into a human being. My grandkids called my mom the mean grandma. That's, that's what they call her. When they say, which grandma are we going to see? The, the mean one or the other one? <laughs> How would you like that for your grandkids to grow up with? We're going to go see the mean grandma. And she earned that reputation sometimes. She was so kind to other people's kids, but she didn't like mine. I don't know what it was. <laughs> she, I guess it's because she lived with us. She lived with us for about 14 years. So she got to see all the things firsthand. When you're the neighbor's kids and you come over, then you don't notice so much. Oh, aren't those little cute little darlings? Your brother's kids, they're so well-behaved. They're so this and they're so that. I got so sick of hearing that. I just, you ever want to punch your parents? You know, I wanted to sometimes. Just shut up. But God has the last laugh. My kids aren't in jail. My kids aren't on drugs. <laughs> My kids, I, I could go on and on the difference. Because, of course, that's because of God and, and the changes that happen. And God knew we was going to get saved, and God worked things in our homes and provided things so we could be the kind of parents we needed to be to our kids. So God got the last laugh there. But that's what God wants to do to each one of us. He wants us to be renewed. He wants us to mount up with wings as eagle, and he wants us to f- be young again. You heard young at heart? When we're in God, we're young at heart. It doesn't matter how old this body is. It doesn't matter. Because inside here, I'm young. Inside here, I have all kinds of energy. Inside of me, I have everything I could possibly need. And that's something to be thankful for. That's what we need to be thankful for. And as we get, no wonder that David said, bless my soul, oh Bless my Lord, oh my soul, and all that is in within me. Bless his holy name. If we just think about these five things, this Thanksgiving, that's enough to give us Thanksgiving and let Thanksgiving well up in our souls, and we can't hardly contain it because we have to thank God. We have to praise God. And that's why it's so important to count our blessings. And this Thanksgiving, count your blessings. Maybe take time to ask what you're thankful for. Because we have a lot more things to be thankful for than this. We have our families. We have our children. We have a, a job. We all, who knows, whatever it is. We probably have as many different things to be thankful for as there are people in here. But that's okay. We need to do that. We need to start thanking God for the things that we have. Because when we are aware of them, our attitude about things change. Sure, I don't have a million dollars in the bank, but I'm paying my bills. I'm, there are people in this country who can't pay their bills. I'm thankful that I can. And we need to thank God. Thank you, God, that I can pay my bills this month. Thank you, God, that I have food on the table. Thank you, God, that I have a church to go to. There are very many people here, but it doesn't matter. Because God blesses the ones that are here. He honors the ones that are faithful and the ones that are thankful. God loves thankful people. And he encompasses with his love and compassion. Last week... I ended the uh, service <coughs> with the idea that I wanted to do, and as you can see, I did bring my shredder. And if there's, uh, Randy's going to go out and get Tammy so that she can be part of this. <coughs> and I asked all of us to get a piece of paper. And if you don't have a piece of paper this morning, he'll give you one. You don't have to write it down. If you, if, if you, didn't, if you forgot, it's okay. Just in your mind, write it down, or you can physically write it down. It doesn't matter. 
whatever you feel comfortable with. And uh, I said that what we wanted to do was to find a way that we could start fresh as a church, to be able to just get rid of the past and say, it's the past, we're going to start new, and we're going to start fresh. And the way that I wanted to do that for us to write down all of our hurts, all of our anger, over anything that's happened, you know, because of the changes that's happened the last little while, with uh, Dean and Rosa leaving so abruptly, and all the the confusion and things that, that that cost or caused us as a congregation, to write down everything that we can possibly think of that we're angry about or that we're hurt about. Maybe it was somebody in the church body. Maybe somebody said something to you. And I'm here to tell you that if someone says something to hurt somebody, they don't do it intentionally. I don't purposely want to hurt anybody. I try to go out of my way not to. But sometimes, you know, we open mouth and insert foot. Sometimes I say only, only open my mouth to change feet because I, it seems like I do that sometimes a lot. But if we have something against someone that may have said something or may have done something that hurt our feelings or just hurt in general, write it down. I got my little list here. I'm not going to read it to you. <laughs> I got some stuff that I need to get rid of. I got some stuff that I have to get out of my life. I've got some stuff that needs to be taken care of. And how am I going to do that? God says he forgives, but he says, I expect you to forgive. And if we don't forgive, he says, I'm not going to forgive you. Now, that makes us scary. I want to be forgiven. I've got a lot of things in my life I need forgiven. I need wholeness in my soul. But it's a prerequisite we have to forgive. So if we have something that we have that needs to be forgiven, like I said, if you don't want to write it down, just in your mind, pretend you're writing it down. And everything that you write on this list, say, God, I want this to be gone. I feel in the pain from it, and I know that I'm not, I, I need to get rid of it, but I don't know how. But with your help and with your encouragement, Lord, I want to write it down on this list, and I want to shred it, and I want to get it out of the way. With your help, I'm going to do that. And sometimes we think forgiveness is, is something really grandiose and that we aren't going to remember it. And that's not true. Only God can forgive perfectly like that. Like I said with a, with a page, when he looks by your name, the pages are going to be white because he completely eliminated them. But God said, I will remember them no more. And forgiveness is not remembering that's the reality of it. So if we have something in our life and we see that person and it reminds us of something that they did or every time we come to church and the church is empty and, and we think, oh, Dean, it's your fault because you left. You caused this and I'm angry because of it. Whatever it might be, we can't blame anybody. We've got to quit. We've got to get rid of it because as long as we have this hurt in our heart, as long as we have these things in our life, this church is going to struggle and we have to start fresh. And then when, when we shred these, I want to with a shred say, with your help, God, I'm going to forgive. And I'm not going to remember it anymore. And remembering, not remembering, is just a matter of when you see something or something crosses your mind, you just change the subject. Say, praise the, praise the Lord, I gave that to God, and that's over with now. I gave it to God, and I've forgiven. And I'm not remembering it anymore. 
We can't call, we have no control over what the devil puts in our mind, but we can control whether or not the bird builds a nest in our hair. So if we see something that we've asked God to help us forgive, don't dwell on it. Just get it out of your mind. Say, I, forget, I forgave them. God, help me. Praise you, Lord. I put that on the list, and it's gone. So that's what I want to do. Tammy, you want to come up and do the... <clears throat> and we're going to do a course while we do this. And, uh, and as we shred these, we want to come up one by one and shred these. And then we're going to take them outside, and we're going to burn them. Because in the Old Testament, it said all the things that were icky, all the dung and all those things from the sacrifice, they carried outside the camp, and they burned it. And that's what I want to do this morning. I want to get, take these things outside of the church and burn them to eliminate them, every trace of it that's on this list that we have. <clears throat> and we're going to do a chorus. Most of you don't know it. It's called, I am the Lord that healeth thee. And we talked about healing. And basically, unforgiveness, is, it, it affects our soul. When I had this last surgery that I had, they went in to remove some bone spurs on my hip because every time I moved my leg, it hurt. And then when I got in there, he found out that the, the scar tissue had not only had, had bone spurs growing in it, but it also had attached to the bone, the muscles and t- tendons to the bone. So every time I moved my leg, it just pulled on that, and it wasn't moving freely, so it caused a pain. Well, that's the same thing that happens in, if we're not forgiving. It just sits in our hearts and in our lives, and it just festers. And every time we do anything, it hurts. But God wants to get rid of that hurt. God wants to heal the broken heart. God wants to heal everything that needs to be healing. And it's, I, I, I am the Lord that healeth thee. I am the Lord thy healer. You sent your word to heal my disease. You are the Lord, my healer. And that's the, 